You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Church, will you pray with us as we stand? God, we do need you now. We need you this morning, Lord, as we gather here. We need you to use your word as it goes forth from your mouth. We we pray that you would use it and build us up, feed us as your church, grow us as your people, build us up in our love for you, Lord, and our love for one another and our love for this world. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray, Lord, as we look together through the Bible. We pray that you would use it and take it and apply it just where each one of us in this room needs it. In your strong name we pray. Amen. Amen. See, I hope please take a seat. Good to be with you today. My name's Ben. I'm on staff here in Melbourne. Good to be with you in Hoyts. Good to be with you if you're joining us 
online. If you're new with us or you're visiting City on a Hill today, welcome. You are most welcome uh, with us. We are in the middle of our rebuild series. We're working through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're thinking about how God rebuilt his people then from ruin, and we're thinking about how that might inspire us to rebuild our community together after a difficult couple of years and and thinking about how we're growing together as God's people here uh, today. Now, in the last few weeks, things have not been plain sailing for our man Nehemiah. The enemies are gathering against him. Uh, God's arch enemy is the one who is behind this. It's Satan at work behind the scenes. The pastor, theologian J.I. Packer puts it like this. Satan is a hitter, a wrecker, and a destroyer, and only when he is ruining God's work in individuals and communities is he happy. And so that's what we've been seeing gathering against Nehemiah. Last week, we met Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. These are the weapons that Satan is using. These guys are are forming uh, forces against Nehemiah. They're getting stronger. They're getting more dangerous. So much so that Nehemiah has to have his people uh, building the wall around the clock. So half the community are building, half the community are keeping watch for these enemies. All of them are building or, or watching with a sword in their hands, ready to defend themselves if the attack comes. Uh, not so different from people in Kiev or cities around the Ukraine. Here's some images. They're rebuilding their, eye, their lives from these ruins, but they're doing it knowing that the enemy is out there, knowing that they could come under attack again at any moment. Can you imagine living with that kind of fear? That's the, the kind of situation they find themselves in in Jerusalem. And as if that is not enough, there is a twist here in chapter 5. Because now the enemy is not just on the outside of the city, now the enemy is on the inside. There is a threat so serious on the inside of God's covenant people that it threatens to bring the whole work down before the walls even get finished. It's a serious situation. So we have got a a big chunk of story to get through today. We're going to look at chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we're going to do that in three bites. Uh, First, the enemy inside. Then we'll think about the enemy outside. And then, spoiler alert, we'll look at the end that God wins despite all the opposition by chapter 7. And as we walk through that story, we're going to stop and pause and think about some of the key lessons that we need to be learning as God's people today. You with me? All right, let's take a look. We'll look first, chapter 5, the enemy on the inside. And now you might know that my hope and prayer over the next couple of years is to plant a church, a city on a hill church in Ballarat, the jewel of Northwest Victoria. If you're looking for a gospel-minded sea change, tree change, I should say, there's no sea, tree change, come talk to me, we'll chat about what that might look like. And so as I prepare, I'm reading lots of church planting theory, I'm looking at studies about others that have gone before us. And so this week, I read a chirpy, upbeat little study called Why Church Plants Fail. Now, I'm a a glass half full kind of guy, uh, but we've got to read these things, right? We've got to learn from the lessons of others that have gone before us. So I'm reading, and here's the thing that caught my attention. Of all of these church plants that fail to get up and grow and get going, the majority fell over. Not because of some external opposition, not because of some kind of aggressive, anti-religion, secularist agenda that was stamping them out. No, 
60% of these plants failed because of problems on the inside. It was unmet expectations. It was uh, planters relying too heavily on themselves. It was internal division. The lesson was clear. Churches fall over when they get consumed with internal problems. And that is true of church plants when they are young and, and vulnerable. But it's also true of bigger churches, well-established, well-built, well-resourced churches that we might look at and think they're too big to fail. When a church, when any church, strays far from the values embodied by Jesus, and when the evil one can get inside and drive a wedge between people and sections of that community, look out. That's exactly what's in play here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Pick it up with me. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to follow with me. Check it out on your phone so we can follow this story together. We're in chapter 5. Here is verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against who? Against the enemies that were outside the city? No. Against their Jewish brothers. This is Israelite against Israelite. People are struggling. They're on the walls, they're building, or they're keeping watch. It's 24-7. And so that focus has meant that focus has shifted off food production, right? And so food supplies are short, and these shortages drive up costs. We're getting a little taste of that at the minute. If you've gone to the shop to buy broccoli or leafy grains, we've got to break the bank at the minute, haven't we? But it's much worse in Jerusalem. Three separate complaints form this outcry. First one from families who have a lot of kids, but not a lot of grain to eat. Uh, It's hand-to-mouth subsistence living, and they are desperate for food. Second group tells us there is a famine in the city. Food is scarce and so expensive that they have to mortgage their property just to buy grain to eat. It is a dire situation. And then the third group, worst of all, they have to pay their taxes to the Persian king. So they've borrowed money from their own Jewish brothers, from other Jews. But now to pay those debts back, they have nothing to offer except their children as slaves. They say this in verse 5. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. They are desperate to eat. And so they've no choice but to be bled dry by other members of God's covenant people. And they're angry about it. And Nehemiah is angry about it. The whole project is at stake here. In fact, their very lives are at stake if they don't balance out these severe inequalities. And he's right to be angry, isn't he? At seeing this injustice, it's the same kind of righteous anger that Jesus has when he goes into the temple and he sees that uh, people have turned it into a marketplace for the haves to exploit the have-nots. He's angry. But so Nehemiah doesn't boil over in his anger. He pauses, he stops, takes counsel, thinks about what he'll do, and then he brings charges against the nobles and the officials, the the very leaders of God's people who should have been in the room with him making these decisions. They can't be because they're the perpetrators. They're leading the way in this guilt. And he said to them in verse 7, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. 
and I held a great assembly against them. You see, that is the rub of the issue. These leaders, they've become loan sharks. They've seized this business opportunity. Food is scarce. They know that people got to eat. So they offer to loan them money so they can eat. But then they load up the interest rates so they can squeeze everything they can from their neighbors, from their brothers and sisters. Ethically, this is bad behavior. Legally, this is bad behavior. Check out this instruction from God's law for his people. Here's what he says, Deuteronomy 23. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Clear, right? They're not meant to do this. And worst of all, this is exactly the kind of carry-on that had Israel exiled in the first place. Greedy leaders squeezing the rest of society so they got richer. No wonder Nehemiah is angry. Uh, There's no point rebuilding the city walls if inside the city they are as corrupt as ever. And so he stops the work. This shows us how serious this is. He didn't stop the work. He kept it going when the enemies were gathering at the gates. But now he stops. He holds a a national assembly where he implores the leaders to stop charging this interest and to give back what they have taken from their brothers and sisters. It is a call to repentance, isn't it? To stop living one way and start fresh in line with God's word. And to underline how serious this is, Nehemiah does his shake it off, shake it off thing. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, In the ancient world, you wore long garments. And to keep your valuables safe, you sort of folded it into your clothing. And then you tied belts tightly around it to form little pockets. It was safer than keeping it in your homes. And, And so to shake out those valuables was a picture of what would happen to anyone who didn't keep this promise. It was a picture of God's judgment. Have a look with me at verse 13. So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. If someone chose not to stop this unethical, law-breaking corruption, they would be trading a little short-term comfort for long-term, eternal separation from membership with God's covenant community. That's what's at stake. But miraculously, Nehemiah tells us that they do what he wants them to. They they swear oaths to do it, in fact. And so the threat of implosion has been avoided. Satan's attack on the the internal unity and well-being of God's people has been fended off. But before we skip past this part of the story is kind of another happy story in, in God's word. There are some really important lessons for us to learn here, City on the Hill. First is this. We cannot do this rebuild at all costs. We're talking lots about our rebuild, aren't we? We're thinking about what God is doing among us as a church, how God is growing us. And we have this exciting vision to reach Melbourne, don't we? With the the beauty and the truth and relevance of Jesus. And it's exciting to play our part in that as we gather here on Sundays 
And as we are scattered, each of us, through different parts of the city, through the week, different neighborhoods, different schools, different universities, different workplaces, office blocks, hospitals, and so on, it's exciting to think how we can play our part by taking what we know to be true of Jesus into those places and sharing it with others, making him known. How exciting is that? But Nehemiah 5 should make us stop and think that it's not rebuild at all costs. He stopped building this big, bright, shiny wall because the inside wasn't all that healthy. And the truth is, as we grow this church, and it is good that we are striving to grow this church and reach more people with the gospel, but it's not just size that matters as we grow. We need to make sure we're growing healthy. If we're not healthy in here, if that rebuild, if that growth comes at the cost of internal community well-being, uh, with a, a Christ-likeness among us in the way we treat one another, it's come at too high a price. It is a rebuild built on shifting sands. You see, the, the character of our community actually really matters. The care we have for one another really matters. The way we treat one another, the, the attitudes we hold towards each other, they really matter. In fact, who we are matters more to God than what we do. With Israel, it was the wealthy and the powerful taking advantage of the less wealthy. And that might be a theme that we see in our community. It's going to look different, uh, but it might be that we need to watch if we're taking advantage of other people in this community. It, it could be that we're leaning on a brother or sister here to give us their professional skills. Maybe they're helping us out at home. Maybe they're chipping in on a project at work. Maybe they're just babysitting our kids. And at the start, it began as a freely given favor. Great. One another helping one another out as, as the body of Christ. But after the third or fourth or fifth time that we're asking, maybe it's time we started paying for those services. Could be that we're in a share house where one of our friends is the head renter. Their name's on the lease. We pay them rent so they can pay the landlord. But they're a Christian and they're a friend. And so we don't always pay on time, and, and we still owe them for last month's rent. That is taking financial advantage of someone in this community, someone in the body of Christ. That is presuming too much from that friendship. And the enemy would love nothing more than to get a foothold inside our community, using that to fester cynicism and slander and division to drive us apart. But it goes beyond money, doesn't it? The chances are it's going to look different in City on a Hill, in a, a church in Melbourne in the 21st century. The, the heart of Israel's issue is that some in the community are carving out their own, their own comfortable niche, and they don't care what cost that comes for, for the rest of that community. So how are we doing? Caring for one another in our community. There's a, an article in the news this week about a study on the impact loneliness is still having after last year, after the last couple of years, we're still kind of discombobulated with all of our lockdowns and what that did to our relationships. Here's one conclusion from the author of the study, Roger Pachulny. Pachulny emphasized that loneliness doesn't come from a lack of relationships, but a lack of quality relationships. 
People can be in a crowded room and interact with other people, but be lonely. Sit on a hill, we have a, a crowded room today. So the chances are that there will be people in here feeling that acute loneliness. So we have an opportunity to do something about that today. What if instead of rushing out after the service, we linger just a little and we look around for people who are sitting on their own? Or we look around for someone we haven't seen for a while or we haven't connected with for a while and we take that first awkward step of starting a conversation with them, introduce ourselves to them. And, and maybe that means we go downstairs for coffee together. Maybe that means we, we go for lunch together. And sure, that might be a little uncomfortable for us because we've got plans that, that are going to get sidelined for this Sunday. But what a difference that could make for someone in this room this morning. We're a big church. And so this is going to impact the way we live together at a gospel community level as well, isn't it? We talked a bit about GCs already. And if you're in a GC, is there someone in your group you haven't seen for a few weeks or a few months? Why don't you reach out? Give them a call. Give up some time to catch up with them. Pray with them as they share their burdens and you share yours. It doesn't have to be the leader's job. We can all play our part in building up healthy, Christ-like community as a church. This is a moment for us to stop like Nehemiah did and think about how we're building that Christ-like community where we care well for each other. That's the first lesson that we can take from chapter 5. The second one that's worth learning for us is that fear can be our friend. Cards on the table. I am not a fan of fear. Have we got any horror movie fanatics in the room this morning? Not many. I'm not one of them either. I don't even look at the horror genre when I'm scrolling for something to watch. I don't like fear. But when it comes to God, fear can be our friend. A different kind of fear. Uh, Look with me at verse 9 where Nehemiah is imploring the, the nobles to stop what they're doing. Look what he says. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. What should motivate them to stop? The fear of God. Nehemiah tells us later that it's his fear of God that motivates him to live generously in this community. He says in in verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over these people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Fear is actually one of the dynamics in a Christian's relationship with God. Not terror or horror like the movies, but an awe, a respect for the difference between us and God. No, we can boldly approach him confidently, come to him as our father. And there is an intimacy in that relationship. But he is not our mate. He is still creator and we are his creatures. We are made by him. There is a difference in that relationship. And when we grasp that, when we live with that awe and respect, it'll change us. 
It helps us listen well to his word and actually want to obey it. Christians, we do honor the Bible as the number one authority in our lives to shape how we make decisions and how we live with what values we live today. We're going to put that to the test big time in a few weeks as we go through left and right. Uh, But so we should. So we should tremble before God. Hebrews 12 puts it like this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Fear can be our friend. Think of that little child that knows that fire is good, but you don't touch it. There's a fear that's healthy in that relationship, child and fire. And with God, it's fear that helps us keep him at the center of our lives so that we worship him above all else in our lives. And it's fear that helps me flee from sin. It's all well and good living publicly as a Christian where there's other eyes watching us, right? We know that uh, what we do, people are going to kind of have an opinion on that. But what if we're in private? What about in our thought life? What about when no one else is watching? For me, it's, it's fearing God. It's knowing that there is a day where I will have to give an account of what I have done with this life. Every moment played out before God. That fear motivates me to flee from sin. It should motivate all of us to live obedient lives. Fear can be our friend. The enemy would love nothing more than to get inside our community, City on a Hill, and tear us apart as individual Christians, ruining our lives, and as a body, a church, ruining our community. We need to be ready to act like Nehemiah was when we see him creeping into our lives and into our togetherness here at church. All right, that is Nehemiah chapter 5. It was long. Here comes point 2. I promise it will be short. The enemy on the outside. That's it. Point 3. Here comes No, I won't. I'm not going to say too much on this. If you missed last Sunday, lots of the themes here we're now in chapter 6 are similar to what we looked at with Guy in chapter 4. If you missed it, catch up with it on the podcast or, or look at it on YouTube. It's really helpful. Let me just say this. Satan has not succeeded on blowing up the community from the inside. And so he goes back at it from the outside. It's Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem again. These are the guys who were meant to boo as we hear their names in the story. Uh, And they have figured out that the only way to stop the work on the walls and to, to keep Jerusalem weak is to get rid of Nehemiah. And time is running out because the wall is nearly finished. So they send him a letter five times. They invite him to peace talks in the plain of Ono, But oh no, yeah, oh no, Nehemiah doesn't fall for their ruse. He knows that they want to do him harm. He knows that they've got a plan to to bump him off somewhere on route and make it look like an accident. So plan B, they change tack. They start a smear campaign to get him in trouble with the Persian king. They're going to tell the king that Nehemiah is raising up an army and he's going to rebel against Persian rule. But that doesn't spook Nehemiah. So plan C, they get sneaky. They pay a prophet to lure Nehemiah into the the heart of the temple, somewhere where only priests were supposed to go. So they know that, that if Nehemiah follows, out of fear of what these enemies might do, that his rule and reputation would be ruined, discredited. 
But the profit they pay isn't the sharpest tool in the box. Check out what he says in 6 verse 10. Now, I went into the house of Shemaiah, he's the prophet, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Did you spot how he gives the game away? He's confined to his home. He probably has an illness. That means he can't leave. And yet the plan is for him to meet Nehemiah in the temple. Nehemiah spots the rat. He refuses to run. He will not fear these enemies. We've seen his fear of God is just too great for him to fear mankind. He's more concerned with finishing this project. City on a Hill, the lesson for us from chapter 6 is that we can't drop our guard. The enemy wants to derail and destroy the purposes of God, and he will try anything to get it done. We have to be wise to his ways. God is building something significant here among us. And so we should expect to see opposition coming our way. We should expect to see these tactics thrown at us, lies spread about us, people trying to trap us into saying or doing something that will discredit our faith, or just outright opposition coming at us. Let this be a warning for us. We shouldn't be shocked when there are some bumps in the road along the way. Please don't give up on Jesus. When the going gets tough, and please don't give up on being here and playing our part in this rebuild when the going gives, gets tough. All right, that's it. Point two, the end. The enemy is on the inside. The enemy is on the outside. But we need to finish with this. Third point, God still wins. You see, despite all the attempts to distract and, and derail and destroy these rebuilding ways of Nehemiah, the wall gets finished. Archaeologists back in 2008 have actually found sections of this hastily built, not very professional job, but a finished job all the same. The wall gets finished. Have a look with me at chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God wins. And this is a pattern we see repeated through the scriptures. God achieves his purposes against overwhelming odds. We see it in the Exodus when he rescues his people from the greatest superpower of the age from Egypt. We see it in the character of Daniel where God protects his people in exile. And we see it most clearly in the person of Jesus. He's put to death on the cross. It looks like the enemy has triumphed, that evil has defeated good, but Jesus doesn't stay dead. We know this story. He rises on the third day, the first person to experience that resurrection and the certain sign of what everyone who follows him will experience. A resurrection of our own. Victory has been won by Jesus. Sin and death are defeated. But here's the thing. Where we sit now in the story of what God is doing and will do in our world with his creation. We know 
There's more to come, don't we? And you know what? That is a tension that exists in God's city for Nehemiah. I want us to see this in chapter 7 as we finish. The, the city is not their home just yet. Well, there's this almost throwaway line that we could skip over and miss. But let me read it. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. I'm going to invite the band up as we finish here. You see, God has won the victory. The wall is finished. The temple is finished. But the city is not yet home. The victory is not yet full and final. And for us, we know that tension. Jesus has won the victory. Sin and death have been defeated. But we know there's more to come. The victory is not yet full and final. I don't know if you've noticed as you come into church, some of the welcome signs say, welcome home. Have you seen those signs? And those are true words, but they are temporarily true. Because you see, we know that our home, our forever home is not this city. It's not Melbourne. Yes, it will be for a season, but not forever. We know that our home is yet to come. And so as we experience those bumps along the road, as we experience a few more jabs and digs from the enemy, and we will, I want us to be motivated by the hope that God holds out for us. He holds up for us a stunning picture of a new city, a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. It is a city where there will be no enemies gathering outside at the gate and there will be no enemies festering inside. There will be no corruption. There will be no sin. There will be no greed, no inequality. Even death will be trampled and lose its sting. And so if we find ourselves this morning in a a season of opposition where it's just coming at us from all quarters, I want us to have hope. And if we've been hurt in the church here or in another church before, I want us to have hope. And if this is the first time you're hearing this message of something greater than the, the, the world we experience now, I want us to have hope. Hope in what God holds out for us. Here's the promise that he gives us in Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For these former things have passed away. Isn't that a home we need, church? Isn't that a home we all long for, a city that we can encourage each other as we strive arm in arm together for? Isn't that good news? Isn't that worth walking to together? 
Church, will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us that we would hold on to that hope and then we'll sing to fill our hearts with that hope. Let me pray. Gracious God, you give us such good things. And we will experience good things in this home, in this church, and in this city, Lord. But we will also experience the the brokenness, the fallenness, and the fight. So God, as we do, and especially for those who are in the midst of that right now, I pray, God, that you would give us this hope. You would fill our hearts and our minds with this hope that this is not the end, that there is more to come that you will win a full and final victory forever. God, move our hearts. Fill them with hope. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.